All righty. Well, hey, how many guys have ever watched the news? I don't know about you, but personally, ever since the election, I don't think I've watched hardly anything of the news, but whatever. Remember those days when you used to watch the news? Okay, and uh, but the news every once in a while they would uh, they would commit a blooper. They'd say something dumb or goofy or out of place, right? Ever, uh, in fact, apparently Brian, they do it so often they they create these uh, news bloopers reels. Have you ever seen those? All right, for all none of you, I'm here to help you out. Uh, let's watch one of these recent news blooper reels, and you tell me if the news doesn't get it wrong quite often. Let's take a look at this. I'm so pale. You're on it. Today's snow is crippling much of the Washington lowlands. DD Megadoodoo, I'm sorry, Mangudu. Once it's turned on, the sign will spell out Delhi Cat Essen. Can you demonstrate for us what it's like to brush our teeth's pet just a little bit? Certainly. It's going to be areas of drist and mizzle. Uh, drist and, what am I saying here? Mist and drizzle. I literally combined both. I'm Scott Mattis, live in Hernando, Mississippi, where there's been spottings of a cougar. And that's not it. That looks like a house cat. But what we can say is that it looks for him in Uxbridge, also something uh, where there may be some concern. He had a 12,000 majority here. 12,000! It's now down to 5,000. 5,000! Some people think it won't happen again. It won't happen again! Thanks very much, Tim. Lots of people trying to get in on the act there. So uh, you're going to do a spoken word for us now, right? Right. And uh, tell us what we're about to hear. It's just a freestyle. Okay. I'm just going to think it up. Freestyle. Well, let me sit back. Go ahead, Marshall. Okay. Years ago, they tried to... Years ago, they tried to put me in the... Uh, this is a lie. Did you want to try to read something from your book? Yeah. Also on Chef was Constance Landry. She says she's lived here her entire life, almost 80 years, been through just about everything. I know 80 years old. Well, just about. I'm sorry, Miss Constance. 76 to be exact. No, 75. 75. Are you coming back to New Orleans and New Orleans East? It's an elephant heavy. I'm coming back, baby. Now to the story of a pig that is inspiring others. One pot. <laughs> One pot-bellied pig has certainly endured his share of problems. Chris P. Bacon was born without the use of his... (laughs) You have to read this story. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I wonder where those back legs went, uh, Mr. Crispy Bacon. Yeah. Hey, that's the news, right? But how many guys say it's obvious, man? Just let them play. Let them speak long enough. The news commits bloopers over and over and over again. Wow. Okay, but folks, believe it or not, as big as all those news bloopers were all put together, I think I found something, uh, unfortunately, that's even bigger than that. Okay, in fact, this is not just local news. This is global news, and it's the biggest blooper of all. It's when people refuse to listen to the good news broadcast of Jesus Christ that he is willing to save you from hell and the seven-year tribulation through his blood and sacrifice on the cross. But no, you don't want to listen to that good news broadcast. And so guess what? You're about to commit the biggest blooper of all. If the rapture were to happen today, and it could, you will be left behind and thrust into the seven-year tribulation, and that is not a joke. You need to respond before it's too late. And that's why we're going to continue our study. Are you ready for the rapture? We're trying to help people get ready for that event. Okay. And again, this is, again, where I call a study. It's where the rubber meets the road. You can disagree on all kinds of things of life. You can have a weird, twisted sense of humor and name your your legless pig crispy bacon. Okay. Well, okay, I'll give you that. But man, whatever you do, don't get eternity wrong. Right. Don't miss the rapture, okay? So, so far, we've seen five things about the rapture to help people get ready for it. We saw the basis of the rapture, the importance of the rapture, the purpose of the rapture, the reward for the rapture, and then the last two times was the timing of the rapture. We don't know the day nor the hour. I don't care how many math degrees and visions so-called from God you get or calculators you own. You don't know, okay? But what we've seen is the scripture is very clear that the church must biblically be gone before 
the seven-year tribulation begins, i.e. the pre-trib position. Now, that's not just a convenient form of escapism as somebody and people would accuse you and I who have those other positions. Uh, that's what the scripture says. We've been taking a look at that evidence. We saw the evidence of the unknown hour, the absence of the church, and last time, the location of the church. If the church was going to be around in the seven-year tribulation, then the Bible talks a lot about that time frame, then you would think that it'd be obvious that the church is around during that time, right? It's not. We are nowhere, not only mentioned the word church during that time frame, we saw that last time uh, and the time before that, but we're, we're not even on earth. And we know we are in heaven during that time. We saw that with two evidences. The phrases come up here, yet we go to heaven prior. Okay, Revelation 4, which is two chapters prior to Revelation 6 when it begins. We're up in heaven, come up here. That's not by chance in the order. Revelation 2 and 3 talks about the churches, 1, 2, and 3, 19 times, never mentions the church again. And then the next chapter, come up here. Then we saw with the phrase, the 24 elders is clearly a reference to the church where in heaven during the whole time of the seven-year tribulation. We go from being the church to the 24 elders, we get a new identity. So again, it's not a convenient form of escapism. We're trying to deny reality. That's what the scripture teaches. We're not going to be around during that time frame. But that's not all, Pastor Bobby. Guess what? There's got to be more. And Brian agrees with you as well. The fourth biblical evidence is the promises of the church, right? I don't know about you, but we're still getting started. But uh, uh, I'm starting to think that the evidence, biblically, that the church is not here during the seven-year tribulation is starting to stack up, right? I mean, we're just dealing with the scripture. And we, again, we still got a ways to go. But even on top of that, believe it or not, what we've already seen, okay, this is where we left off last time with the teaser, right? Did you know that Jesus Christ himself promises very blatantly that the church of Jesus Christ will not be in the seven-year tribulation on top of already what we saw, okay? And he made this promise to the Philadelphian church in Revelation chapter three, which is not just applicable to them, okay? It's applicable to you and I today. And it's a clear, obvious promise that we're not going to be around in the seven-year tribulation, okay? But it's always, don't take my word for it. Let's take a look at God's, right? The first promise that Jesus gives us is the church will be kept from that hour. And that hour he's talking about, we're going to see, we're going to shred this apart, is clearly, obviously a reference to the seven-year tribulation, okay? But again, let's take a look at what Jesus has promised the church. Revelation chapter 3 is our opening text. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 10, right? Sometimes some of the uh, antagonists to the pre-trib position, i.e. the mid-trib, that the church goes halfway into the seven-year tribulation, the pre-wrath position, basically the church is three-fourths of the way in the seven-year tribulation, or the post-trib position, the church is in there all the way through. Uh, they'll, they'll basically sometimes say, well, there's not one single verse, not one single verse in the Bible that supports the pre-trib position. Excuse me? I mean, this is it. How do you get around this? This is clearly a promise to be taken out of, off the planet. Okay, so we're not in the seven-year tribulation. But I didn't say it, Jesus did. Let's take a look here. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 says this. Jesus, of course, speaking. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who, Jesus, who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, Jesus says to this church. He says, see, I place before you an open door that no one can shut, Okay, and I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, here it is. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, here's the promise. I will what? Also keep you from what? The hour of trial that's only coming upon your localized community. No, I'm sorry, that is coming upon the what? Whole world to test the church because they're in the, no, what's it say? To test those who what? Who live on the earth. Again, notice the two audiences there because you got two audiences there, right? You may be seated, but let me, let me clear something before we literally begin to shred this apart. And you're going to see, if you can't already see it, hello, uh, this is clearly a reference to the church being raptured out, taken off the planet before the seven-year tribulation begins, okay? Now, first of all, I want to clear this up. There are actually some people who say that the letters to the seven churches, uh, Revelation 2 and 3, only refer to periods of church history, okay? I disagree with that uh, for a couple reasons. Number one is the dangerous premise of that, right? Because, and and this is the problem, this is what it's led to. People that would say that uh, it's uh, referring to uh, this age and 
And then, well, this guy says, well, no, that church is referring to, I think it's this age with this year, and it starts on this century and ends here. Well, then this guy comes along and says, no, it's actually referring to this, and I think it's this. See, see, that's the problem. It's just when you say that it's referring to a period of age, who gets to decide who and when and what and where? It makes God's word subjective to the person's personal opinion, and that's why there's literally 50 different opinions on what these supposed church history ages are. I think that's dangerous, and I think it's missing the point of what we see here. Rather, I believe, like all the scripture, we take it at face value, that this letter to the uh, church of Philadelphia was written to literal Christians who went to the church of Philadelphia, right? I I think it's just common sense. And just as it taught them a literal truth back then, it's applicable to what? You and I today. Why? Because that's how we interpret the rest of the scripture. Right? Would I go to the book of Romans and say, well, doesn't deal with us today because that was only referring to the people of that time. No, the book of Romans refers to what? Them and us because they were Christians, we're Christians. It's truths for all time in the church age, right? And then would I go to the, uh, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians? Well, that really represents um, this period of history because that, and it has no applicable, it's just speaking of a, no. Why would I do that? So if I interpret the book of Romans literally, that it was literally to the Romans at that time, but it's literally speaking to me today, why shouldn't I do the same thing here? Well, that's why I take that position. That's how you're supposed to interpret it. Now, I said all that to get to that because that means that the promise that Jesus gave to this church is guess what? Yes, it was to them, and he fulfilled it to them because did they go into the seven-year tribulation? No, obviously, for those of you hooked on chronology. But guess what? It's also applicable to us today. Right? So I need to get that out of the way because, believe it or not, some people, I think, take a little detour and they get off into subjectivity. Okay? But let's begin to shred this uh, apart. Okay? Here's my point. If you look at the context of Revelation 3, uh, Jesus says to these, he says, I know your deeds. Right? This is one, uh, there's only two churches out of the seven in Revelation 2 and 3 that get good words from Jesus. The rest of them get spanked and bad words. Okay? You don't want to emulate what they're doing. But this is one of the good ones, okay, Philadelphia. And he says, I know your deeds, and here's what he says. He says, listen, I know that you were faithful to keep his word. I know that you were, uh, didn't deny him, and I know you've been putting up with a lot of trials and tribulation and persecution from non-believers. In other words, I know you're true born-again Christians. The, 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 the fruit's in the pudding there. You, you can see it, right? And so he gives them, listen, a reward. And again, just like we interpret the book of Romans, that was written to the Romans and is applicable to them, then it's applicable to us today. And here's that reward for anybody who's a true born-again Christian. Jesus says this, I will keep you, literally spare you, from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test those that live on the earth. If that ain't the seven-year tribulation, I don't know what is. And we're going to shred it apart even more so. So it becomes obvious that's the promise from Jesus for them and for us Today, first of all, notice the timing, right? The timing, right? Perfectly just happens to fit the pre-trib scenario that the church leaves prior to the seven-year tribulation, right? This is in Revelation chapter three, where chapters two and three, Jesus deals with who? The church, then and for today. Chapter four, we saw last week, what? As soon as he's done addressing the church, where's the church go? Come up here. And then we get a new identity, the 24 elders, right? And then Revelation six is what? That's when it begins. So. To me, you leave it alone, let it speak for itself. That perfectly fits the scenario. I'm dealing with the church. Church goes up in heaven. Then the seven-year tribulation starts. Can anybody figure that out without any help? So the timing, I think, is not by chance, okay? And, and, and then, not only that, then notice the distinction. There's two different groups of people that are mentioned here, right? The church, who gets kept from, literally raptured, as we'll see in a second, off the planet. It has to be, okay? And then those who are what? Still on the earth which again is the pre-trib scenario. If it was one audience, then you got a conundrum, but it's two, right? You got the church that gets kept from the trial that's coming upon the whole world to test those who are still on the earth. Now, what is the event, therefore, that creates the two audiences? The rapture. Just leave it alone. It begins to speak for itself. Furthermore, the phrase there, hour of trial. Some people say, well, this is just some localized event, like an extended time of persecution or maybe a giant earthquake that, that uh, Jesus said, I'm going to spare you from uh, you know, Philadelphia. No, right? It's, it's uh, actually the, the Greek words hora perasmas, and it means a time of testing or a season of testing. It's not talking about one literal specific hour, okay, as some people would say. Uh, then notice the context. 
the context, it can't be a localized event or some local catastrophe, right? It says clearly right there to the whole city, the whole hemisphere. No, it says what? The whole world, okay? The time of testing that's going to come upon the whole world for those that are still on the earth, the church is kept from that. Again, if that ain't the seven-year tribulation, what else are you talking about? And then contextually, it has to be, because what book are we in? Revelation. What chapter? Three, four, five, six. It starts what? The seven-year tribulation. That's the promise. And finally, the church, listen, the promise here to the church is not an exemption from general trials. You know, people say, oh, again, it's just, it's just some localized event, some trial that he's going to spare them from. What? No, because Jesus promises elsewhere, guess what you're going to have when you're still here on earth? You're going to have trials, right? That would create a contradiction, right? Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Well, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. They did it to them, they're going to do it to us, right? Let me give you another one from Jesus, John 16, 33. I've told you these things so that in who? Jesus, you may have peace. In this world, you'll never have any trouble. In fact, God's going to guarantee that you wear Armani suits and slick shoes and a Cadillac. That's right. You just sow a seed to my ministry and you'll get a thousand. You liar. What do he say? You will have trouble. But Jesus said, take heart. He's overcome the world, right? So therefore, this promise here in Revelation 3.10 can't be speaking, I'm just going to rescue you from a, a general trial in the, in the future. No! Jesus already, and he already committed that they're already going through trials, right? And it would make no sense. What kind of a promise is this? Hey, guys, I just want to commend you for doing great. You haven't denied my name. You kept my word. You put, put up with all kinds of trials and tribulation and persecution. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to reward you. I'm going to keep you from one general trial later down the road. Ooh. When he already told you you're going to experience it, doesn't make sense. Rather, what he's talking about is, listen, it is, has to be the time or season of testing that's going to come upon the whole world for those, not the church, who are still on the earth. Again, if that ain't the seven-year tribulation, I don't know what is. Right? It's clearly what the promise is speaking of. Then on top of that, okay, uh, Jesus says, and the word that he uses here is that we are taken out of. Okay, and we're going to get into the Greek here in a second. And this is important because there are those like the post-tribulation that believes, oh, no, no, the church is not only in the seven-year tribulation, but you're in there during the whole seven years. Really? And they say, but, but here's how we get around that. Um, God preserves his people during that time. What? There ain't no preserving for those people who get saved during that time, which, by the way, as we saw last time, is not the church, but the tribulation saints. There's no preserving going on here. Your positions, what Bible are you reading? Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. We saw before slain is fadzo in the Greek and it's literally just a butcher and a flame. It's very, very, very bad. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. All right, here's another one. And he says there, then each of them is given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Revelation 7, I, after this, I looked there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the lamb. They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands. Then the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And, and where'd they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Excuse me, there is no preserving for people who turn to God during the seven-year tribulation. And again, this isn't the church. We already demonstrated that. That's the folks that made the big blooper worse than Mr. Crispy Bacon. You were told that you could have escaped this whole time frame. But she said, no. And you were left behind. And then you might even said this in your brain. I'll tell you what, if you Christians disappear, I'll tell you what, then I'll know you're true and then I'll get saved. Then excuse me, heads are going to roll, literally, during that time frame. Revelation tells us the decapitation is coming back. We saw that before. It's going to be a horrible time of slaughter to anybody that turns to God. Yeah, praise God, you got saved. But why do that? Get saved now, right, is the whole point. But there is no preserving that's going on, so that can't be true, Okay. And again, this is the problem. And let's go back now to the phrase there, keep you from. God's very specific. If he wanted to say he's going to preserve his church in that time of testing, 
he would have used the Greek preposition dia, which, mean, which means that, okay, that you're going to go through it. He didn't say that. It's actually the Greek uh, phrase there, tereo ek, right? Uh, ek as in exit. Because we all know that when you go to the exit, what you do is you stay there and then you're preserved right by that door forever. Now, what, what does ek mean? What's exit mean? You go out. You have vacated the premises. And that's what he's saying here is tereo ek. It literally means a keeping out of, a keeping separated from, keeping safe from what? The seven-year tribulation. That's what the promise is. That's what the, the phrase means. It's not in. You're completely out of it. And it's common sense. Let me give you some analogies of what this keeping you from tereo ek means in just other practical manners. First of all, let's take a look at the, the war analogy. Right? Suppose you lived on earth prior to World War II and you were given this promise. You'll be kept from the trial of World War II. That means you wouldn't face any of the bullets or the bombs or the battles and maybe they could isolate you, preserve you in the island and you wouldn't experience any of that. Okay? Uh, you could still be in the war but protected the war. That's what they would have you and I believe with post-trib and whatever. Uh, but that's not the promise we're given. The promise is this. You'll be kept from the what? Time of World War II. Now, for that to be fulfilled, you could not be on earth during the entire period of years from 1941 to 1945. To be exempt from the time is to be absent at the time when the event takes place. You see the difference there? He's very uh, explicit in the language. Let me give you another one, the test. Let's say that you want to reward the students that had a grade point average of A, right? And here's the promise you made to them. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep you from the exam for being such good A students, right? And you could keep it this way. You could say, well, I'm going to have you come to the exam. I'm going to pass out to everyone, but I'm going to give the A students the sheet containing the answers, right? And then they could take the exam, but in reality be kept from the exam. They they would live through that time, but not suffer. Again, that's the premise they would have you and I believe that God's going to preserve people during this seven-year tribulation in the church. But that's not the promise. If I said to the class, I'm giving you an exam next week, I'm going to reward the A students, I'm going to keep you from the what? The hour of the exam, they would understand that to be kept from the hour of the exam means they will what? You won't be there, you won't be present during that hour. Again, I'm being redundant on purpose. Folks, the Bible is very replete. You aren't there at all, you can't be there. Okay, and let me give you just a a couple... Uh, uh, more positions. I call miscellaneous. To be kept out of jail means the person will not be behind bars. Can you figure that out without any help? Same phrase there. To be kept out from the swimming pool means you were exempt from getting wet. Didn't even have a drop of water on you, right? To be kept out of the army means you weren't allowed in the army. You were exempt from serving the army. You saw no action, no nothing, because you were kept out of it. Uh, If a basketball player was kept out of the entire ball game, guess what? You didn't play at all. You didn't see any action because you were kept out of it. If, If a science person probably said, keep out, that means they don't want you on the property at all. Your presence is not there at all. The scripture said Moses was also what? Kept out of the promised land. Did he set in there? Was he in a little bubble? Did he make himself a tent and he just had to live all by himself? He was preserved. No, he didn't get to go there at all. He didn't get to step one foot in. It's the same promise, folks, for you and I. To be kept out of the hour of trial that would come upon the whole world, i.e. the seven-year tribulation, means that the person will not enter that time at all. You'll be exempt from that time. You, and in order to be exempt, you can't be on earth during that time. Aren't you glad that God's very specific? He doesn't want you to want, uh, is that really what he meant? Yeah, that's what he meant. The only way that you and I could be kept from the time of the seven-year tribulation is to not be on the planet during the seven-year tribulation because it's a global event. You got it? One guy, he puts it this way. I love it. He says, indeed, the first century believers who made up the assembly of the church of Philadelphia never lived to see the time of trouble that this verse describes. In other words, did Jesus keep his promise to that church that you're not going to go in the seven-year tribulation? Of course. And guess what? It's the same thing for you and I today because it's applicable to you and us Today, the hour of testing spoken by the Lord would not be fulfilled, okay, for some 2,000 years, and yet the Lord was true not only to his promise to the Philadelphian church, but to you and I, the church age believers today. And the Bible is clear. There is coming a day when the entire world will be on trial. God will be that judge, and he will judge all those who are still on the earth, their earth dwellers, and they will endure this terrible time of testing. It will be a time that will involve the terrible plagues and judgment and wrath of God that is graphically described in Revelation 6 all the way through 18, leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ with us coming back 
with him. But in Revelation 3.10, the Lord himself promised the church age believers that they would be exempt from the hour of trial or the time of trouble that would come upon the whole world. Listen, he did not promise to keep us through this time. He didn't promise to keep us in this time. He promised to keep us out of this time. And how will he keep us out of that time? By removing us from the earth before that time takes place. And again, I'm just reading the scripture. Shocker, Cody, it just happens to agree with what? The pre-trib position. This is not a form of escapism. That's what the scripture teaches, okay? But that's just one promise, okay? The second promise that we are not gonna be here, a promise from God, folks, is that the church is kept from God's wrath, okay? And folks, I don't know, man, I don't know what Bible you're reading if you don't get this. This, to me, this is about as blunt as you can get. If there's one truth that's very apparent in the scripture, it is that we are no longer appointed unto God's wrath, okay? Uh, and, and, and then, but that's what people say. Well, okay, I get that, but let's deal with something. You say that um, uh, the church, okay, is not going to go in the seven-year tribulation. But the Bible says, as you just saw, the Bible says that we're guaranteed tribulation. So their logic goes like this. So how could you say we're not in the seven-year tribulation when we're promised to go and experience tribulation? Because it's not the same thing. In fact, uh, once again, talk about specifics. It's two totally different words. General tribulation, which we are promised, is thelipsis in the Greek. And it refers to this. Pressure, oppression, affliction, distress, trials, and troubles. Guess what? We're promised that. But the tribulation with a capital T is God's wrath being poured out. Orge in the Greek, not thelipsis. Okay, which means violent anger, emotion, wrath, indignation. And the scripture is clear. Yeah, we're going to experience the ellipsis, gentle tribulation, but praise God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We just sang about it. He rescued you from God's wrath, and which means we can't be there, right? Now, I didn't say that. He did. Let me give you just a couple passages of that wonderful promise. We're not going into God's wrath. Romans 5, 8 through 11. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us and wants to pay off. Here's one of them. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from what? God's wrath through him. Through who? Through Jesus, right? Let me give you another one. 1 Thessalonians 1, which by the way, 1 Thessalonians 1, then you got 1 Thessalonians 4, which is the rapture passage. And then we're going to see 1 Thessalonians 5. So right before and right after the rapture passage, on top of Romans chapter 5, God says, you ain't going in my wrath including the seven-year tribulation, when I'm going to pour out my wrath. But here's what he says here, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And to wait for his son from heaven, what are we waiting for? The rapture, right? Uh, uh, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who what? Rescues us from the coming wrath. Well, what's he talking about? The coming wrath. The wrath that's going to be poured out on the day of the Lord, which starts at the seven-year tribulation and moves forward, right? Then again, after the rapture passage, 1 Thessalonians 4.10, now 5, he says it again. So, you know, he's repeating it so you don't make the mistake. 5, uh, 9 through 11. For God did not appoint us to what? Suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, freak each other out. Go to those websites, buy 100 pounds of beans. Every other week, store them up, get, another, get a bug out shelter on the backside of Utah. You better get that four-wheel drive Jeep. And you better get one that's got that muffler on top in case you got to go through water, man. You're going to have to make it there. And you're going to get that lime because you got to bury your waste products. And you got to store up all this. And you know, ah, and freak out because you're going to have to survive. I'm... No, he didn't say that. What did he say? Encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you were doing. Now, that's just three passages of Scripture, folks. Scripture interprets Scripture. And if God says it more than once, he's trying to get your attention. And the context we're dealing with here is the rapture that happens before the day of the Lord, which starts at the seven-year tribulation going forward. And what's he say? Maybe it's just me, but I'm coming to this conclusion. God's very blunt. He has, here's a wonderful promise. I'm not only going to take you out of that time of testing, the seven-year tribulation that's come to the whole world to test those who are still in the earth. Then he says, you want some more good news? Here's another reason why you can't be there. Because I have saved you from, I've rescued you from, and you are not appointed to suffer my wrath that I'm going to pour out during that time frame. Can anybody figure that out without any help? So how can you put the church in that time frame when God is very explicit? Hey, guess what? I saved you from, my son saved you from that. So why do you keep putting the church in there? It doesn't make sense, 
Okay. Now, for even more proof, again, as I did uh, using sarcasm and humor to make a point, what's he say there? Rejoice. Rejoice. Now, think about the other positions. Mid-trib says, we're going through half of the seven-year tribulation, then we're out of here. Pre-wrath says, we're going three-quarters of the way through, then we're out of here. Oh, here's some good news. Post-trib says, we're going through the whole thing, and then here's your blessed hope. At the very end, you go, and come right back down. Encourage one another with these words. (laughs) What? Folks, one nanosecond in the seven-year tribulation is not encouraging. This is hell on earth. This is God's wrath. It's his fist pummeling the planet for the wicked and rebelliousness. That, there's nothing to it. If you're in there, there is no rejoicing. There is no, hey, Bob, I want to tell you, you think you got it bad now? <laughs> Wait till you see when we're in the seven-year tribulation. <laughs> That's not encouraging. The only way for this to fulfill what Paul says to do, encourage, rejoice, is to what? You're not going there. Now, granted, I don't, and you say, well, that's, yeah, that's it. To me, I, I take that as, in, as uh, comfort. And dare I say, I take it as comfort right now because it puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Right? Because we all have that me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity thought, my problems are bigger than your problems. Your problems are nothing compared to mine. Mine, me, mine. We all think we got it bad. But if you ever put it into perspective, right? You think you got it bad? Go visit a hospital sometime. You think you got it bad? Look around. Could be worse. God is good to us. But can I tell you something? You think you got it bad? Maybe you do have health problems. Maybe you do got financial problems. Maybe you got all kinds of problems. But you know what? Praise God, you'll never be in hell or hell on earth. I don't know about you, but that encourages me in my trials and tribulations today. It's a great promise. And it does cause to rejoice. Whoa! that I'm guaranteed through the blood of Jesus Christ, I am saved from, I am rescued from, I am not appointed unto God's wrath. Yes, thank you, God. Just keeps getting better the more you read the scripture, okay? And again, think about it. There has to be uh, a separation that's going on here. There has to be two different audiences. If we were here, there's no encouragement. One guy, he puts it this way. He says, listen, believers in every generation, we face trouble. Some have faced terrible persecution, even martyrdom. Jesus told his disciples, in this world you'll have tribulation. John 16, we saw that. Acts 14, 22, the apostle Paul says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, let me make it very clear. I do not believe that Christians are somehow exempt from troubles in this life, even serious trouble. Just a cursory reading of the scripture makes this clear. True believers get ill. We have family problems. We deal with emotional stress. We face persecution. We lose our jobs. Uh, we, we, we die. We live in a fallen, sin-cursed creation. But listen, there's a vast difference between the troubles and tribulations of this life that we all face and the wrath of God that will be poured out on this godless, wicked, sinful planet in the final years of age. The difference is between tribulation with a little t and the tribulation with a capital T. Two totally different things. Just because the scripture says you're going to face tribulation doesn't mean we're in the seven-year tribulation. We can't be. It's two totally different things. And that's why God tells you you've got two different audiences you're dealing with here. The church who gets rescued from and they who are still on the earth. Let me highlight that for you. It's pretty obvious, right? First Thessalonians 5, right after the rapture passage, Paul talks about two audiences. He says, now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, or seasons, you, the church, have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord or the seven-year tribulation will come just like a thief in the night. While who? They, now obviously a different audience, right? They are saying what? Peace and safety. The people that are they who are left behind, not you, the church, okay? Antichrist makes a covenant, Daniel 9, 27. What's the event that starts the seven-year tribulation? He makes a peace treaty, and then Revelation 6, 1, the white horse rider, he comes riding on a false peace, false utopia. Yay, he's going to bring peace to them. While they're crying, they, not the church, they are saying peace and safety. Bang! Sudden destruction falls upon them because the second seal, right after the first one, is the red seal, the red horse rider, global war busts out. It doesn't last very long. And it just goes downhill from there. But so it's two different odds. And listen, it will come upon the church. No, them suddenly, like birth pains upon a woman, with child, and they shall not escape. But you, notice the difference, 
brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you like a thief. Why? Because you are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. The church, we, you, are raptured. They, them, face destruction because they didn't want to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm just letting Scripture speak for itself. And I'll add this point. I like one guy brought this point. He says, think about this. First of all, God clearly says we're saved from, rescued from, not appointed unto his wrath, right? And again, what is his wrath? Pummeling, pounding, man. Scripture says all these people that we're watching, even on the news, all the global elites with their nefarious agendas that we've talked about, and and it's becoming more and more apparent how wicked and evil, they're not getting away with it. The scripture says these people, unless they get right with Jesus Christ, they are storing up God's wrath, right? And he's going to unleash it, man, in the seven-year tribulation. He's going to pound the planet. But think about this. We, the church, are what? We're called the bride of Christ. And then you're going to say that we're going to be under the pummeling fist of God's wrath in the seven-year tribulation? i got a problem with that. Because the question to me is that, First of all, he clearly said he rescued us from it, but then think about it. Does that mean that Jesus, our bridegroom, will brutally beat his bride before he marries her? What kind of loving husband is that? And this might sound harsh, but this is what you're implying. Is Jesus a wife beater? The Bible also says that the church is not just the bride of Christ, the church is the body of Christ. So does that mean that Jesus is going to beat himself up before he comes back at the second cut? Scripture says he was already beaten and bruised for our behalf on the cross so that we could be rescued from the wrath. You're messing with Scripture, man. I don't recommend that. Okay? And again, one guy, he puts it this way. He says, listen, one is forced to ask, how could the Lamb of God die and rise again to save the church from wrath and then allow her to pass through that wrath on those that reject him? Makes no sense. Such inconsistency might be possible with man, but not with the Son of God. God's wrath will be unlike anything this world has ever seen. And we are forced to ask the question, why would God leave his bride on earth during this time? It makes no sense. Christ is not intending to bring his bride to heaven bruised and battered and bleeding and badly damaged by the dreadful persecutions of the Antichrist, let alone God's own wrath that's going to be coming upon the whole world for the seven-year tribulation. Rather, he has promised to take us home in a timely fashion so that we will be kept from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world, the seven-year tribulation for those that are still on the earth. We can't be around. It's impossible, right? But let me give you one more. These people, they, they still persist. And again, I, I like the phrase that one guy used, and he calls them the, the people who want to put the church in there. They just persist. They, they bring the evidence. They say, oh, yeah, whatever. And they just yeah, we bring another evidence. Yeah, whatever. Tribulation wannabes. They just want to be in the seven-year tribulation. Right? And, we, um, how many, and we're still got more evidence, guys. But how many, we're like, can you just submit to the scripture, which is what you're supposed to do as a Christian? And why would you resist this promise? This is a great promise. <laughs> I'm not going to hell. I'm not going to hell on earth. Why do you always have to try to squeeze the church in a time frame that God says, I promise you, I'll never do that to you. Why? But whatever, here's what they do. They say, here's, the, here's the one way they try to escape it. Well, all right, you got me, Pastor Billy. Scripture's very clear. The church is not appointed unto God's wrath. Can't get around it. It's all of the scripture. Well, thank you. But here's what they do. But, aha, and here's where they twist the scripture. See, we can still squeeze the church in there because... A seven-year tribulation is not a full seven years of God's wrath. The first half or the first three quarters is only man's wrath or Satan's wrath. What? I don't think so. But let me, let me, this is what they believe. This is what these other positions believe. The tribulation wannabes would have you and I believe about God's wrath. Post-trib says that the church will be left here on earth and goes to the entire seven-year tribulation. But don't worry, God will protect his people during that time. We saw that can't be true because what? There is no preserving going on, Right? Uh, but anyway, pre-wrath says the church age believers, yeah, we're going to be spared from the wrath of God. But they say, no, 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 God's wrath only occurs in the final part of the seven-year tribulation. And according to them, all the first basically three quarters, three quarters of our time frame of the seven-year tribulation is, no, it's not God's wrath. It's the wrath of man and the wrath of Satan. Therefore, see, there's no conundrum with the scripture and, and the church can still be there. And then, of course, mid-tribs is basically what it means. They say, no, no, God's wrath is only poured out in the second half of the seven-year tribulation. And so we Christians 
are going to be in the first half. And so there's no uh, contradiction in the scripture that we're not under God's wrath because it's not really his wrath. Excuse me. But folks, that's literally what they do. And you say, well, that's crazy based on what we just read. Yeah, I believe so. But I'm telling you, these guys persist. I don't know why. Tribulation, why are you doing this? Why are you resisting this promise? Why are you making Jesus look like a wife beater? But this is what they do. They say, oh, no, it's, it's not. Well, let me demonstrate very quickly how we know scripturally. I, and I'll say this. It's not just ludicrous. It's not just ridiculous. It is, I'll use this word, blasphemous, to say that this wrath that's going to be poured out in the seven-year tribulation belongs to man or Satan, any part of it. Excuse me, because you're giving credit to man or Satan when it needs to go to God. All right now, let's just begin to take it apart. First of all, the context of where this wrath is coming from during the seven-year tribulation is in Revelation chapter 4, the heavenly throne room scene. Two and three deal with the church. Four, we're up there, new identity. And then what happens after that? The new identity of 24 elders. Then it's God's heavenly throne room scene. Then it switches to what? Revelation chapter 5. What's Revelation chapter 5 all about? It's when Jesus Christ is found to be the only one who is worthy to what? Open the scrolls. What do the scrolls contain? The wrathful wrathful judgments that are going to be poured out in the seven-year tribulation. Did it say man was worthy to open the scrolls? Satan was worthy to... That's why I'm saying it's blasphemous. Satan was worthy to open the... No, only Jesus Christ is the only one who is worthy to open these scrolls. So this is coming from heaven and it is being unleashed and delegated by the only one who has the right to dish out the wrath, and that is the Son of God. Then, when you start with the seven-year tribulation, when it begins in Revelation 6, it is about as blunt and verbatim as you could say, very repetitious. This is not coming from the wrath of man or Satan. This is coming from the Lamb. I didn't say that. God did. This is the very beginning of the seven-year tribulation. Everybody agrees with this, basically. Revelation 6, 1, And I watched as Satan opened the first of the seven... I'm sorry, wrong translation. I watched as man opened the first of the seven seals, and that's what... Where's this coming from? This is the very beginning. Who? The Lamb, Jesus Christ, right? Now, Revelation 6, 3, and when the who? The Lamb opened the second seal. Revelation 6, 5, when the who? The Lamb opened the third seal. Revelation 6, 7, when the who? Lamb opened the fourth seal. Uh, Revelation 6, 9, when he, contextually, still Jesus, the Lamb, opened the fifth seal, right? Revelation 6, 12, I watched as he, Jesus, the Lamb, opened the sixth seal. Revelation 8, 1, and then he opened the seventh seal, which opens up the seven trumpets, and after that comes the seventh bowl. Every single one, seven for seven, this is the beginning and goes all the way to the end. It is coming from who? The Lamb of God is the one who is responsible for this wrath. How could you say this is man or Satan? You just want the church to be in there, and I'm sorry, you're twisting the scripture. But then it gets even more apparent than that. Then when you see the Lamb opens the seal, orders come forth from the four living creatures, right? Last time I checked, the four living creatures do not work for man. They don't work for Satan. They work for God and his heavenly throne room scene, right? Here's what we see, Revelation 6, 1. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice, like thunder, what? Come. And what is this? This is the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. And this is the white horse rider. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are, are being unleashed. Revelation 6, 3. I heard the second living creature say what? Come, and here comes the next one. Revelation 6, 5. I heard the third living creature say what? Come, and here comes the next one. Revelation 6, 6. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures, again, saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wages, three quarts of barley for a day's wages. Do not damage the oil and the wine. Revelation 6, 7. And when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say what? Come, and then here comes the next judgment. Again, do these entities, the four living creatures, the angelic cherubim that surround the throne room of God, are they waiting for a phone call from man or Satan to tell them what to do? No, this is all coming from God, man. All of it from the very beginning. From God's heavenly throne room scene, from the Lamb of God, who's the only one worthy to open this up, and it's coming forth with his angels. Listen, angels is angelos in the Greek, which means messenger. These are messengers of God. Do angels of God, because there's fallen angels, demons, but do angels in God's heavenly throne room scene, do they work for Satan or man? No, again, I belabor that point, okay? But here's, here's the point. These guys exist in heaven doing God's work, okay? Then on top of that, did you know, here's the irony, and we'll close. Did you know that the people in the seven-year tribulation, even in the first half, did you know they admit where this wrath is coming from? And did you know they do not say it's the wrath of man or Satan? 
Even they know that it's from Jesus Christ. I didn't say that. They did. Watch this. This is the first half, folks. We're in the sealed judgments. Revelation 6, uh, 16 through 17. They called on the mountains, rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits where? On the throne, i.e. heaven, and from the wrath of who? The lamb. How can you get any more clear than this? And this is the first half, folks, of the seven-year tribulation. So how could mid-trib say, oh, that first half isn't uh, uh, God's wrath. It's the wrath of man. They, they admit it where it's coming from. How could you say three-fourths of it is not? The, they admit it, folks, right? And for great day, their wrath has come and who can stand? Now, even though wrath isn't found until that sixth seal, listen, the previous judgments, famine, sword, pestilence, and wild beasts, the first four judgments, is clearly speaking of God's wrath. Do the homework. I got the verses up there for you, okay? And the verb has come. Some say, well, that means they're just acknowledging it then. No, that's not what it is. It's past tense, which means of a past event, which means the wrath has already been going on this whole time. They just now are acknowledging it in the sixth seal, which is still the first half. You can't escape it. And then you keep reading from that point forward. It's all God's wrath. It's not man's wrath. It's not Satan's wrath. Revelation eleven eighteen. the nations are angry and what? Your wrath, God's wrath, has come. Revelation 14, 10. He too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out in full strength into the cup of his wrath, God's wrath. Revelation 14, 19. The angel swung his sickle on earth, gathered its grapes, threw them into the great winepress of whose? God's wrath. Revelation 15, 11. I saw in heaven another great marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because of them whose wrath? God's wrath is completed. Revelation 15, 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven Golden bowls filled with the wrath of who? God, who lives forever and ever. Revelation 16, 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of whose? God's wrath on the earth. And Revelation 16, 9, the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Not man's wrath, not Satan's wrath. If you read the scripture and you allow the scripture to speak out to us, which is how you're supposed to interpret the Bible, you cannot say that any of this it's from man or from Satan. From the very get-go, in fact, even before it started, Revelation 4, it starts in that heavenly throne room scene. Revelation 5, here comes the Lamb of God. He's the only one worthy to unleash these judgments. And Revelation 6, it's the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb. They even admit it, it's the wrath of the Lamb. And then it continues to the very end. How you could sit there and, all because, listen, all because what? He just wanted the church to be in there. And some of these people, I'll say this. Some of these people, I think I know why they want the church to be in there. Because we preach the scripture, which is encouraging and causes us to rejoice that we're not going to be there. That's why the rapture is called the blessed hope. Because we have the hope that we're not just not going to hell. We're not going to hell on earth. But in the meantime, it motivates us to get the gospel out. And it motivates us to live a holy life, to be a positive advertisement for Jesus. Amen? There's something to gain by these people who want the church to be in there. Because you're not preaching hope, you're preaching fear, and then your solution comes with a dollar sign. Because now your motive is not to share the gospel, it's to hang on and survive. And we just happen to have those 100-pound bags of beans for you to buy. That's right, at a cut rate price with this bucket of lard, and that's right, you need to have it. I told you before, that one ministry shared with me, one of these so-called ministries who put the church in there, in one year alone, it was some crazy amount, like $70 million that they brought in just off of survival gear. There's big bucks, unfortunately, in twisting the scripture to squeeze the church in the time frame that God's promised us repeatedly. I love you. You're my bride. I'm not going to beat you up before I marry you. If that's what you want to do, I'll stand over here while the lightning bolt gets you. You're going to stand accountable to God for that one. Okay. But as cool as that is, one guy, he puts it this way. This is awesome. He says, the nature of the entire seven-year tribulation period is one of pounding judgment from God himself against this wicked and rebellious world, not the church. The judgment of God begins with the first seal. It's opened up in Revelation 6. It continues all the way to the end of the second coming of Jesus Christ. God himself and the Lamb are the source of this wrath against this world from start to finish. Most Americans are well aware, listen, of what happened on December 7th, 1941, Right? It was a quote, a a day that will what? Live in infamy. Why? Because that's the day when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, inflicting heavy casualties on the U.S. Navy and crippling the U.S. fleet. Now, most people also know what happened the next day, 
December 8, 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt called on Congress to make a formal declaration of war against Japan and its Axis powers of Germany and Italy. But most people don't realize what happened the next day, December 9, 1941. That's the day when President Roosevelt issued an order, listen, calling all the U.S. ambassadors home from Japan, Germany, and Italy. Why? Because before he unleashed the full wrath of the American military machine on these nations, he wanted to make sure that no American civilians were in harm's way. Why? Because the wrath of America was for her enemies, not her own people. And in the same way, before God declares war on this godless, wicked, rebellious world at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, unleashing his unmitigated wrath, he will call his church, his ambassadors home. Why? Because God's wrath is not for his bride, the citizens of heaven. God's wrath is for the wicked resistors who are still on the earth and have rejected Jesus Christ. You had your way out, but you scoffed and mocked. And you got left behind. But as cool as that is, is anybody encouraged? They're not going to be there? That's from Jesus. That's why he says rejoice. Encourage one another. Right? You may have it bad now. I, again, I don't know if you guys know this, but man, there's, there's canes popping up all over this place. They're everywhere. All over Henderson, up where we live. I've seen It's just like, I'm just, oh. But be encouraged. You're not going to seven-year tribulation. Right? It's just cause to rejoice. It worked for me anyway. But that's right. So I deal with the ever-increasing evil that is spreading across our culture. But as cool as that is, the fifth biblical promise that the rapture takes place prior to the seven-year tribulation is the removal of the church. In fact, God's very blunt about it. He says, basically, what we'll see is we have to be gone before that event can start. But we're out of time, so we'll deal with that, Lord willing, another time. But my point is this. Are you ready for the rapture? Now, if you're not saved, guess what? You're not ready. Why are you doing this? Jesus has provided a way out. We just read the scripture. He will save you, he'll rescue you, and you'll no longer be appointed unto God's wrath. All that wrath that you're storing up right now that I used to before I got saved, boom, wiped out clean. And you won't be appointed unto that anymore. Not just hell, but hell on earth. You can have that if you would just receive it by faith today. So if that's you, don't hesitate. The rapture is, it could happen right now. But, if you're a Christian, not to get you to doubt our salvation because praise God, once we're saved, we're saved forevermore, amen? But the scripture's clear. Did you know there's a lot of people who just have a head knowledge that God exists and they think that makes me a Christian? Did you know the scripture's very clear? That doesn't make you any better off than a demon. I didn't say that. James did. James chapter two, verse 19. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Uh, you believe that there's one God? <laughs> Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Are demons saved? Do you think demons know that God exists? In fact, read the New Testament, the Gospels. When Jesus showed up on the scenes, what were the demons saying? Hey, who are you? I've never seen you before. I have no knowledge of you. Not so much. What do you want to do, the Son of God? They know who God is. They know who Jesus is. They know who he is. But guess what? They ain't going to heaven. How many people are sitting there going to church services their whole life, and that's what they think? Oh, because you hear them. I, I run into them all the time. Uh, I, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. And it's, just, it's no more than just a head knowledge. It's just like, like some, I believe Abraham Lincoln existed. I never saw him. That's not the gospel. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is not mental sin. It's to believe on his death on the cross as sufficient and the only payment for the forgiveness of all of our sins to take us to heaven. That's to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But the enemy's got it so twisted today. People are, the churches are flooded with people that just, oh yeah, I believe in God. And you know what? If that's your case, then you ain't ready. That means you're going to be left behind. Like this lady. If you guys recall last time, remember we, sh- we, sh- we saw the story of the guy that denied Christ when he was put to the test? Well, in the immortal words of Paul Harvey, and now the rest of the story. Believe it or not, what we saw was the second half. Let's, let's back up the tape and let's take a look at how it first started. And this time we're going to see how did the lady fare? when she was put to the test. Watch this.
what do you do? What do I do? What do I do? Well, here I am hitchhiking in the middle of nowhere on a weekday afternoon. Do you really think I have somewhere to be right now? Hey, I didn't want to stereotype you. No, you did. You just didn't say it. Look, the least I ask for is a little... Honey, don't. No, let me finish. The least I ask for is just a little respect, all right? After all, we were nice enough to pick you up. I mean, if it weren't for me, you'd still be stranded on the side of the road. Yeah, right. What? I don't believe that for a second. I know your type. Yeah, that's right. You want to talk about stereotypes? Well, how does this sound? Uptight, self-centered, arrogant yuppie. Yeah, the truth hurts, doesn't it? Well, the truth is, you wouldn't have stopped for nothing or nobody. But she made you feel guilty. And that's the only reason you stopped. That, and to keep her from griping about it for the rest of the trip if you didn't stop. So don't try to sound like some hero with a sense of obligation to me. You don't know the first thing about me. I think I'm pretty close. What did you say you do? You didn't ask. Well, I'm asking now. Yeah, if you must know, I'm the pastor of one of the largest churches in the state. Really? The pastor, huh? You couldn't just leave it at that. No, you had to add, for one of the largest churches in the state. Said with just the right amount of pride. And what about you? I'm the church secretary. Church secretary? Pastor. Wow, I've hit the jackpot. So, what, you're both Christians? Yes. Yes. And what does that make you, like, Bible-banging, scripture-quoting Jesus freaks? No, that's not what it's all about. I know y'all have got that holier-than-thou attitude. Well, so much for not stereotyping. Look, I speak my mind, okay? I know from the minute you guys saw me, you had me stereotyped. You just didn't say it. Well, the difference is, I'll actually say it. I will tell you exactly what I think of you and what I think of all Christians. You're all a bunch of hypocrites. Now, wait just a minute. No, no, honey. Let him finish. You're obsessed with something you cannot see and cannot prove. You spend every possible moment in church, but if you were put on the spot, you wouldn't even know what you believed in. If you surrendered to this Jesus, then how come he's not at the top of your priority list? Christianity? Try hypocrisy. Here's what I suggest. We drive quietly and peacefully. We'll take you as far as you want to go, provided the trip is silent. Whenever we get close to where you think you want to be, let us know. We'll let you off and we'll be on our way. Or you can ride the entire time to where we're headed and then we'll let you out. Deal? No deal. What? No deal. Then what do you suggest? Stop the car. Actually, I'm mad. Stop it. the car! I'm not going to stop the car right here. Yes, you are. Whoa, 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 what are you doing? I suggest you do exactly what I tell you unless you want to see someone close to you die. Oh, my God! Oh, I see. Now that your life is at stake, you can call for your God. Well, how convenient. Newsflash, lady. Your God is the reason I'm doing this. Because I don't believe in your God. And I have never found a Christian who truly believes in their faith. I... I believe. Do you? I believe. Do you? Then do you want to die? Do you want to die for what you believe in? Come on, this is your chance to make a statement to the world. A statement that will cost you everything. Do you love this Jesus more than you love your own life? Do you understand that I will kill you based on your response to this question? Do you love Jesus more than your own life? Wow, two for two, failed the test. Pretty graphic, but... Now we know who the guy was. He was a what? Pastor, one of the largest churches in the area. Because we all know because you're a pastor and you're behind the pulpit. Or, well, we don't even have pulpits anymore because that's not cool. You need to have a stool. No Bible. A stool. With a cup of coffee there. With an overhead with a fluffy cat discussing low self-esteem. We laugh because that's what what a lot of churches are full of. As I told the first service, I I could tell you stories until I'm blue in the face. 
I think there's an epidemic of that going on in churches today. And one guy, I'll just share this on tape. Not only admitted as a pastor, he was lying to his church. He's not saved, and he knows he's not saved. He doesn't want to be saved. He even had a number. He said, I'm in debt, and if somebody were to give me right now today $200,000, I'll resign in a second, walk away from this. Worship leaders, Sunday school teachers, board members, we can be here all day. How many people, they say, oh, I'm ready for the rapture. But you're going to fail the test. And you know what that test is? When all of a sudden you see people disappear and you're not one of them. I hope that's not your case. The good news is, be encouraged. If you would call upon the name of Jesus Christ, he will save you from, he will rescue you. You will no longer be appointed unto that time frame. Amen? Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death. In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. Okay. How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandment says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even His name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's His standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven? On your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I, I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the Scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step, to admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That, that's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus, so that we can now have a relationship with God, both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes 
that we've committed against him and disqualified us that disqualified us for heaven right and we've actually seen this work in real life uh, for instance uh, there's been people who have committed crimes gone to court the gavel's been passed the judges said hey listen we all know you're guilty uh, you even admit you're guilty and uh, for your crimes you're going to not just jail you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty and did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row. It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done. You can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know it's actually on historical record that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty and they've refused to take it. And so even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what He was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you could be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth he is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the grave and the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.